Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Chantelle. I'm Tisa. And today we are in Cambridge, at Cambridge University, with um, Priyamvada Gopal, Dr. Priyamvada Gopal, um, who is a reader in English here. Thank you so much for joining us, Priya. Happy to be here. Um, we're so excited to be here. <laughs> Me and Tisa are actually like a bit giddy, aren't we? We walked from the train station. We've never really been round here before, and it's a pretty. There's a lot of horses here. There's a lot okay. of horses. Well, this is what I was thinking. There's a okay. lot of horse poo on the floor. So I'm thinking, this is a nightmare for my trainers. I'm like. <laughs> that horses are not a regular Cambridge occurrence. Really? Yes. This is so well, I don't know, we did when we were walking through. Yeah. Yeah. Two tons. I was really? Like, look, this is weird. Like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 100% Londoner. Like, you're, yes. if you catch me outside East London, you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, so like, well, welcome to Cambridge. Welcome to the Fens. <laughs> We've actually put on nice weather for you today, or yes. nice-ish weather. Yes, it looks slightly overcast, but yeah, very nice, very nice day. So yeah, so we're really excited to be here. Um, we contacted you, Priya, because we were so inspired by your anti-racist work on Twitter and your writing and just how much we feel like you've been a voice for the voiceless, especially more recently. Calling out issues around racism and sexism in higher education that we feel it's written about quite a lot, mm -hmm. but actually there's not as many people doing the work and actually vocalising it like the way you've done. So we sort of come to you as a bit of a big fan, basically, of the work you're Thank doing. You. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I guess maybe it might be worth us starting by, when me and Tisa were walking through, I was saying, T, why did you never apply? Why didn't you ever apply to Oxford or Cambridge? And we sort of got into a discussion about always sort of feeling like and thinking this environment wasn't for us. 100% I, I would not think of applying here simply because they're not my people in mm -hmm. inverted commas. So when I say people, either from a racial point of view or from a social class point of view. Mm -hmm. So you're not even, it doesn't even come into your head. So at finishing my A-levels, it's not an option. It's not even an option, don't even think of it. Yeah. Even going to university, my friends thought that was weird. So Oxford and Cambridge was never yeah, beyond the pale, yeah. as it were. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's uh, something that I hope is going to change, um, and I think is changing in the time that I've been here. My first, I came here in two thousand one um, from America, wow. and I was actually really shocked at how undiverse, if that's a word. It's weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like in America, yeah. like you've got like black colleges. Yes, you do, like, you have I historically black colleges. I just yeah. can't believe, like, yeah. so seems so foreign to me. Yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah. So when I first came here, it was an incredibly uh, homogeneous environment. Um, and it has changed in recent years, I think for the better. There are definitely more people of color and there are specifically definitely more uh, mixed race and black students. Um, and I have to say that it has made an extraordinary difference to the quality of my life and to the quality of life I think that many students experience. You you began by saying that, um, you know, you, you've uh, been interested in my speaking up and speaking out. But actually, I would say that for me, the speaking out has been enabled by the change in student profile here that wow. actually 
students of color, more working class students, more politically progressive students mm -hmm. have actually been the, they've been the inspiration. They've got me and other lecturers talking about things that we didn't talk about even 10 years ago. Okay. Um, wow. And I, I really cannot overemphasize this, the ways in which even the minimal diversity that we have now, mm -hmm. and it is very minimal, mm -hmm. has been transformative for this institution and for people like me who work in this institution. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually changed my own life for the better, but I think it's changed the institutional life and the kinds of conversations that we're having for the better. And Cambridge is a very different place, even with a handful more uh, you know, people of colour and black students in particular that, that we have now. Yeah. I mean, it's good to know that they're here because definitely when me and Tisa are walking yeah. from the train station, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're walking through, I'm like, yeah, this yeah. is pretty white. Yeah. But it's... You see, my experience, my experience has been, this is the space I operate in. So I don't, if I come to something like Cambridge, I don't feel out of place. I, I feel like when I worked in the city, it's similar. Yes. It's mainly all white people. Yes. Where I grew up, it's mainly all white people. I'm always in that space. But I, I think, how do you change that? How do you make it more inclusive? How do you open it up? And this is why I find somewhere like Cambridge, which is a prestigious uh, place, Yeah. how do you open these kind of gates to, for more people to come in? Mm -hmm. And this is why I find your work interesting. Mm -hmm. I suppose if you speak up about these issues, it makes people want to check, well, question it first rather than change it, question why they are the way they are. Yeah. And But then are people willing to kind of respond in that way so people get defensive? So I don't know how you're... Yeah, there's a couple of things to say here. Uh, your discussion of your experience, it seems to me, whether it's in the city or whether mm -hmm. you know it's at, at universities, is about the racialization of privilege in this country. Mm -hmm. That although, of course, there are people who are identified or, or described as white who are not wealthy, who are not privileged, the fact remains that the privileging and advantaging uh, in the in the institutions of this country maps on to race. Mm -hmm. uh, that very heavily, advantage is white. Uh, it then sort of moves down and you have you know, wealthy Asians, uh, particularly of those of Indian descent rather than mm -hmm. Bangladeshi or Pakistani. And then you have um, a very small number of people in advantages or privileged positions who are black. And again, you know, I, I, I find myself repeating this, it's not that there aren't poor white people or disadvantaged white people, but we have to look at the ways in which social class and social advantage maps onto the racial mm -hmm. structure mm -hmm. Of this country. Um, so I think that's what you're describing and I think mm -hmm. that that is uh, something that absolutely has to change whether in the city or whether in, in higher education. Mm -hmm. But I also want to say that I don't see this in terms of Cambridge extending itself and being nice and including non-white people. I think we need to, to look at the conversation very differently. It's not okay. it's not about making Cambridge more inclusive, although yes, of course we want to make Cambridge more inclusive. I think Cambridge has to recognize, as do other universities, that diversity is a value in itself mm -hmm. and that it is a value that is transformative not just for the community, but for education itself. Mm -hmm. um, having students of color, having black students, having Jewish students in my classes has changed the conversation. Uh, you know, we, we are no longer working with a fairly narrow set of parameters when we look at literature, whether that's British literature or literature from other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. That 
classroom now has people speaking to different histories and different experiences and different ideas mm. and that changes the quality of the knowledge that's quite interesting so i agree with you about the diversity thing but what the kind of pushback from the right has been is diversity is a problem yeah so they point to the, the kind of example is multiculturalism this is caused a problem mm. so you have all this difference but no homogeneity no no universal values yeah so you've got a group here doing one thing and they're, they're saying this has caused a decay so they, they're kind of lashing back kind of harking back to kind of old kind of notions of um the governor and his the book inequality of human races so like the idea of diversity was too much and it causes decline civilization with decline and this is what the right see they see all this yeah. diversity is causing a problem yeah. do you see that do you see that manifesting in institutions themselves so we've obviously seen more recently in the press so cambridge saying we do need to do more about diversity but we don't want to lower our grade yeah. boundaries so yeah. is this is this a defense of whiteness is it a defense of institutionalization like what what is happening here why are people not more open to having the classrooms that you're describing yeah i mean i think it's because there's a very narrow understanding of achievement and that that narrow understanding of achievement i mean it's it's partly uh governmental uh in the sense that mm -hmm. you know uh there are there is only a fairly narrow set of criteria on which admissions are premised in not just in oxford cambridge but uh, other universities um so I think that the idea of what constitutes achievement absolutely yeah. has to change because I think simply looking at people's um, A-levels uh, doesn't tell us very much at all. Um, and we have the interview system here, which other universities don't have. And that I've done interviews now for 17 years, and it's not clear to me that it tells me very much more than uh, what the marks are telling me. I mean, I think I can see whether a student is confident or not, or whether a student is able to engage with me in conversation or not. But again, it's it's fairly narrow, you know, in, in, in half an hour, uh, there's not all that much that you can assess uh, about a person's capabilities. So it seems to me that Cambridge, Oxford and beyond have to change their understanding of what constitutes achievement. Um, and we need a much fuller sense of uh, what a student can bring to the university. And you have this to some extent in uh, many American universities, not just in the historically black colleges, mm -hmm. which of course had to come into being uh, in part because you know black people weren't being allowed into, into yeah. other spaces. There was, there was segregation. Um, but you will find now that the best American universities do take account of things beyond your grade point average uh, they they take your uh, you know SAT scores into account they take your school performance into account, but they also look at all kinds of other things they look at things that people can bring to a university community I'm not idealizing that system I mean that system is yeah. also very heavily racialized mm. in terms of privilege and, and advantage but I think there's more of a recognition there that you can't just look at marks because if you just look at marks or you just look at how confident someone is in an interview process you are going to advantage not just uh white students but you're also going to advantage privately schooled students yeah. i mean that yeah. is a big problem here this yeah. is this yeah. is what this so this is what i worry about um so i recently spoke about this in a podcast how i've been trying to go to more and i hate this term i'm going to use it bame events in mm. higher education mm. so this is bringing together people of color that are wanting to progress in higher education or mm. postgraduate education and the thing that i've struggled with is being a working class black woman mm. the people that are talking to me 
about progressing and staying on they still don't really represent me so it's like okay let's let's bring it let's let's make sure we're having institutions that are more inclusive but what does that inclusivity look like what is the social class like and it's the problem that we have when we separate white working class and race it's such a problematic thing because you forget that black people are obviously working class and that's the problem that I have so yes I want to see more people that look like me in an institution they're going to have a lot of similar experiences to me like racism but they're not everything that I'm about I'm a working class girl do you know what I mean it's difficult isn't it because I think social class is so important like I said when I've seen through but navigating the world you might not have the grades but if you've been to a privately educated you know the way to communicate to talk how to talk your way into stuff. Yes. And I think a good example, again, is like someone like Boris Johnson. Now he's, he's been, he's failed so miserably at so many jobs and he hasn't been sacked. He's yes, been... well, it's what I call the white man's free pass. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're a privileged white man of a certain mm-hmm. class background, you don't need to be good at your job. You don't need to be successful mm-hmm. because you have the networks around you that keep you in place. This is it. And I was trying to explain to my friends. So I, I go to, a, a, I suppose it's kind of like a rarity in London. It's like a working class men's gym so yeah. only that women in like last year right so it's, it's almost like the, that dinosaurs but i i tried to say to them that the same things exist here as they do in, in the corporate world i said we have a system that kind of favors us yeah so any outsiders yeah we exclude so they're not one of us and we can tell the ways of being so if a middle class person comes in he look he dresses different he moves slightly different and i said subconsciously you exclude that guy mm. you make him mm. know that he's the other yes and I said, this is the process that goes on all the time. And so sometimes you think, is this, is this almost like a natural thing to kind of preserve that kind of your thing that you hold dear, where you have power? Yeah. And I said, if we do it at that level, so I said, it must kind of replicate itself throughout society in different places. Sure. So sure. I'm thinking, how do you... Yeah, although I think I probably would make a slight distinction <clears throat> between less advantaged groups having their own spaces. So okay. I used to go to a women-only gym mm-hmm. and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, God. You know, That's the dream. <laughs> that Where is that gym? <laughs> is that you are not surrounded by, uh, you know, apologies, but, you know, men pumping iron. Yeah, <laughs> Just like, and men you, staring at me. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I want to go well, to that, that gym. Too, that yeah. too, exactly. So I, I think there are spaces where I can see, in a way, if you're working class, if you're black, or if you're mm-hmm. uh, queer, you might want to have your own mm-hmm. spaces. So you're quite right that it is, an, on the one hand, it's a natural tendency, but there's a, there's a difference with white institutions or upper class institutions sure. because that's about shoring up privilege. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's a slight mm-hmm. distinction between a kind of a, a safe space, if I dare use that term, yeah. for, for beleaguered groups or groups that need to mm-hmm. uh, rely on each other and keeping institutions yeah. uh, as bastions of privilege. I mean, in, in one sense, um, whenever people sneer at students for wanting safe spaces, I always say, you know, actually, Cambridge is a, is a safe space for privately educated white men. Uh, you know, it's yeah. they heavily dominate this place. And there's a way in which, as you just said, you know, for instance, of Boris Johnson, there's always a safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, yes, you're quite right that it is a natural tendency and we can see this mirrored in mm-hmm. different places. But there's a particular, I think, aggressiveness about protecting privilege yeah. that we need to really kind of look in the eye. Mm-hmm. I have to be slightly the voice of Saskia here. So Saskia is basically, well, I don't, sorry Saskia if I'm not saying this in the right way how you would, but 
Saskia's basically says the reason why these institutions exist, so Oxford, Cambridge, yeah. Durham, is to be exclusionary. So she basically critiques David Lammy and says, listen, they're not going to do it because the point of these places is to not let everyone in. Yes. So how can you, how can you change that when the whole ethos is the opposite of what we're yeah. maybe trying yeah. to do? Yeah. Well, I think that this is why I'm careful with the word diversity. Yeah. Um, and we, what we don't want to, uh, in a sense, uh, be satisfied with is what in America uh, is known as the talented tenth. That you, you know, you you scoop out the most talented people of mm. color or the or the most able people of color and then allow them mm. into the institution at the, you know, with others being excluded. So. I think that these places have to change very fundamentally in themselves. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing valuable about homogeneity. There is nothing, nothing to preserve in terms of keeping institutions homogeneous, but allowing the, a handful of non-traditional mm. faces mm. in. So for me, and this is why I began by saying why my classroom is now changing and why it's a different place. Uh, for me, there's an inherent value and I think Lamy, to some extent, is working with the talented 10th model. He mm. wants, you know, some black people yeah. uh, allowed in without the institutions necessarily fundamentally changing. Yeah. I think that we've seen in, uh, in recent years, I think he has seen in, in recent months through Grenfell and Windrush, that it's not just a question of allowing some people in, mm. that there are no. some very, very fundamental changes that have to take place. Mm. So for me, I would like to see Oxford and Cambridge transformed in class terms, in racial terms, and it's and not just be a place that uh, is nice about admitting a few more black people in. Uh, mm. that, that, I think, is... Uh, is a self-defeating mm. uh, move. I mean, sure, it'd be nice to have a few more uh, faces of color, uh, but it's not, if it doesn't fundamentally change how we think about education, how we think about ourselves as a community, and about how the, the place of universities in society, mm. if those big changes don't happen, then all we're doing is, you know, adding a little bit of color. Well, this, this is what, one of the things I kind of talk about in the podcast as well, university space in society. I always feel when I go to a university, they're like oases of yeah. knowledge and of, of stuff, but it's not really linked to the This It's a public space. And there needs to be more dialogue between the real world and universities. Absolutely. But I find when I speak to, so any supervisor I have, they almost, they're so lofty and academic, but they, they don't really relate to the real world. Sure, still. sure. And this is the problem. So we, we go, I go to university and I don't find that there's a link people come here and it's like a break so you go to university you have a really good time then you're back in the real world yeah and that that's to well, my experience that was a shock yeah yeah because the real world was a killer yeah on my first day i had no money so i had to go to the uh, <laughs> sign on and i had a copy of, i had a because I'm actually finishing university, so I'm feeling really intellectual. So I've got a copy of um, the Communist Manifesto right. sitting there with the uh, proletariats. I'm reading yeah. it, and I'm thinking, this is this is real life. This is real life. University is such a disconnect. You go to this place for three years, have a nice time, come out with a degree. Depending on your social class, it heavily influences where you're going to turn up. Yeah. Where you're going to end up. Yeah. Your opportunities. Who you're going to speak to. I think this is one of the things that we we've been talking about as well. Like okay, we want to make these spaces more inclusive, but how do we prepare people that are marginalised, who we bring into elite spaces, mm. how they might be treated? Mm. 
And I guess that maybe brings us on to our next topic with you about being an anti-racist scholar and doing this work and speaking out, what that is like. And it's, it's, it's so hard because you don't want to, you don't want to always be cynical. You want to inspire people, but at the same time, I want to prepare a woman of colour that is coming up through higher education of the microaggressions that she might have to experience. Like, I want people to know that, but I also don't want them to be to feel disenfranchised by it. Do you know I what do I mean? Know, yeah, yeah. I do know what you mean. Um, I think you're right that there's a great danger of uh, universities becoming oases that are disconnected from um, things that matter. But it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. And. I have to say that, that any anti-racist struggle uh, in universities or, or a struggle to make them more inclusive of, of working class people has to be connected with its being made public. Mm. It is vital that we keep the British university system public, um, that we not allow uh, a removal of the fees cap, we not allow privatisation, that we see universities as institutions with an obligation to the public at large as, as, as institutions of public service. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to, we have to somehow, you know, keep that fight alive <laughs> alongside the anti-racist fight. The question of microaggressions and preparation uh, to come to these spaces, um, it's a difficult one. Uh, but I think that's the way to look at it is to say, yes, you know, w when we go to university, uh, if you are uh, from a minority background, if you are a sexual minority or a, a racial minority, you will face aggression and microaggression. Uh, that's not something unique to universities. No, uh, you of know, course. You know, you, you, you yeah. will face these, and uh, it, it won't be a new experience in that sense. But I also, this is why I keep coming back to uh, what I would remind, uh, you know, young women of colour thinking of coming to Oxford or Cambridge or going to university at all, is they have something to contribute. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going there as supplicants. Yeah. They're not going there in order to be allowed in and tolerate the microaggression or the active aggression in return for being allowed in. That they are people who are bringing to that institution something that that institution and that community must be grateful for. I am very grateful for the diversity in my classroom because apart from making my everyday life better, it has made my teaching better. Mm. It has made the kinds of issues that I can bring into the classroom better it has made for a more sophisticated discussion mm. so I, and, and i have to say that I, it, particularly looking at the you know young black women in my classroom who i didn't there were no young black women when i first came here 17 years ago it was wow. uh, i think I, I i remember the one uh, <laughs> and, and we're still in touch um, but in, in in recent years there have been many more um so i'm not just thinking of the one name i'm thinking of several and i'm thinking you have transformed this place and your presence has meant the quality of the conversation is different. I mean, the decolonized movement at Cambridge, which mm -hmm. came out of the English faculty and now has spread to, to other faculties, was almost single-handedly young women of color mm. who brought that conversation and slammed it on the table. And now this university has to deal with it. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to idealize it, that they've all dealt with, you know, things uh, that are not fun at all. And, and it's been a painful experience in many ways. But I would remind uh, people who are coming to these spaces that they're not coming as supplicants who have to be grateful, that actually it is the institution that has to be grateful for their presence. I, th I think that is what is what I'm finding is missing from the narrative produced by these elite institutions yes. about diversity. Yes. It's 
it's made, it's like oh now we've got to look up now we've got to bring in these lot like now we've got to, now we've got us cater for these people it's not like no actually i'm really valuable yeah, so absolutely. you'd be really privileged to have me this that is what's missing yeah from the all these conversations mm -hmm. about black people coming into colleges that we are important it's not about being thrown a few crumbs from the table but that's how it feels though yeah absolutely that, that's, 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 <laughs> and that narrative has to change and this is the thing so when you when you're in your open days and you do that it's these institutions sell them on that brand that we're exclusionary so if you get in you've done well son right you've you, done well right and but then you reinforce that because when you go speak to your parents and they're like you got into cambridge everyone's very happy so you're, it's a brand yeah so you carry this brand and so you're you're happy to get in and you yeah. put up, and like I said, to, like I said to Chantal, my 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 work experience, you go somewhere, and because you you value your career, you put up with those microaggressions. Yes, correct. Because and you you say, yeah, I'll swallow that. Yeah, yeah, and that should not be the case. It should at never all. be the case. It should and, not be the case. And I've only felt as I've got older, I became more confident to challenge that. But when you're younger, you accept that. You do. We all do. Yeah. Because you know you want to get out, you want to make your way up to yeah. the top. Yeah. And this and this is the thing. So an institution like this, they they can not knowingly, but. They understand these things happen. Yeah. So I'll come here and I'll swallow what you said to me. I'll have that. And but you don't change it. And only when you start getting old, you start you think start thinking. Should I have said that? Yeah. Should I have said something back to that guy? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a difficult thing because it what, is incredibly difficult. I mean, it took me years to find my yeah. voice. And as I said, uh, it, it's the it's the changing student profile that made me find my voice because I realised that there were things that needed to be said that were no longer about me. Things that I swallowed for many years because I thought it was just about me. Now yeah. I realise that there is a larger constituency to which one is answerable on yeah. matters of anti-racism, microaggression, uh, and 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 so on. Um, but. You know, I think it is very important that, uh, as as I don't like the word BAME uh, either, but we'll use it for what it's worth right now. I think it's quite important for us not to also fetishize, uh, as sometimes happens, uh, gratitude. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that these institutions are very good at doing is wheeling out uh, you know, the, the black person or the Indian person who say, oh, it's perfect here, there's no racism. I don't remember some... 10, 15 years ago when, when the race issue first started to bubble up, this institution wheeled out a black lecturer in another faculty uh, who was here, I think, only temporarily. I haven't seen him <laughs> since uh, to say, no, there's no racism at all at Cambridge. It's perfect. Um, and so I think that, that we need to look at our own communities and say, how are we engaging with these institutions? And what are the terms on which we are asking for entry? Well, this is the thing. I, I, so one of the things I try to understand when I was working is why don't I see more uh, people of colour or more women in or working class women in, in these spaces that I was in and so some of it was to do with the corporations yeah but also when I came home and I spoke to my friends it was some, their attitudes so some of them would say it's not a space I see myself in yeah so you ask them well why and sometimes it comes down to kind of the kind of subcultures that exist mm. so for young black guys it's a subculture that's anti-education, uh, anti a lot of things. Yeah. But within that subculture, they're positive uh, yeah. attributes. But outside that subculture, they lead to failure. Yeah. So it's trying to say to them, trying to adjust their kind of expectations and kind of how they see themselves. Yeah. And it's just that they can enter that space and not lose their identity. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of them would say to me, so one of the things they call me a coconut or this, that, you because, but I don't speak slang. Yeah. Or you're not black. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I, 
clearly. Um, right. But, right. Um, these kind of things. So going back to see your going back to your going back to your friends and trying to get them into that space, they almost seem just negative from the outset. And I can understand why. The other piece of the puzzle is trying to engage our own communities and saying, look, listen, you can be in these spaces. Yes, You absolutely. should be in these spaces. Absolutely. And you need to reclaim them. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I always said that decolonize is not just about uh, asking white institutions or white people to change. Decolonize is something that all co- colonized cultures <laughs> and post-colonial communities have to do. Because after all, we have learned to see ourselves in the mirror of uh-huh. empire. So one way or the other, we're reacting. So either we're grateful to be included and speak accordingly, or we decide it's not for us and turn our backs on it completely. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to see yourself as an agent is to be able to occupy neither position, that you're not just doing complete rejection, mm-hmm. nor are you doing total assimilation, mm-hmm. that you're really saying, I'm accountable to my communities and these institutions are accountable to me and to my community and I'm going to knock on the door and make them change. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I don't think that the onus of change should be on minority communities. So, I don't, you know, I perfectly well understand why uh, you know a subculture of young black men may look at a university and say this is not for me because this space self presents as white mm-hmm. as privileged as uh, as snobbish mm-hmm. right so the institutions have to, the, the, the initiative must come from the institutions mm-hmm. which say we are willing to change we want you as part of our communities mm-hmm. and we value the contribution that yeah. you will make no, um, I agree I agree I think what you said as well before Priya about um, wheeling out people of colour to talk about places not being racist when yeah. they are yeah. I think that is definitely something that we're seeing a lot more of yes. like tokenism whether that be in higher education or our government yes. at this stage yes, like, so we, we talk a lot about absolutely. this about how it possibly is a product of racism that we see that people of colour should be on the same side as us mm-hmm. but equally we have to understand why people are okay with being that token person and actually not recognizing the racism that most people of color will experience in these spaces Um, well what we know one thing about colonialism right uh which is that it needed collaborators uh there were always people whether you know it was the indian upper castes or whether it was you know some african chiefs there were people who enabled colonialism, who enabled the empire, and that role hasn't quite gone away. And you know, we do have, yeah. very sadly, we have uh, you know black politicians uh, who ha- and Asian politicians who are brought out to say there's no Islamophobia or that Windrush wasn't about race. When I hear these politicians talking, I think, you know, what is really sad here is what a cliched role. You're playing. Wow. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and, and this is the kind of that you touched on, them, like the idea of uh, collaboration. This is a, a historical thing. It's always yeah. been there. Yes. But I, I think that's an, a narrative that's kind of not really kind of wheeled out enough. A, a lot of people, especially a lot of young black guys, speak to, don't really understand the role that we played. I, other black people, other African chiefs, will play in this whole thing, this sure. whole system that's been set up, sure. the whole colonial system that's been set up. And it's something that they don't really acknowledge almost. Right. That someone of their of the same that looks the same as them gained something out of this sure. and sold you. Sure, sure. And this is I think this is a thing that's missing. Especially yeah. like in the debates I see from American debates and stuff like that. Oh obviously the biggest thing right at the moment is like when Kenya West said that thing about slavery. Yes. And 
So there was lots of debates and lots of people talking about it, but I'm trying to get to you. So I said, do you understand how complex this issue is? I said, you're focusing mainly on such kind of like superficial statement, like good and bad, white people are bad, bad black yeah. people are good because they're, yeah. they're victims. Yeah. Yeah. I said, but do you understand how many black people were involved in this yeah. over time? And I said, no, that's even discounting, you're discounting the kind of whole Arab slavery yeah. that went on for longer. And all these people that are involved, like Ethiopians who capture like, other Africans and bring them to the, the Ottoman Empire. I said, do you understand how complex it is and try to understand why people do this? Mm. But that is missing from the conversation. It's very... Yeah. Uh, two things to say there. I agree with you. It's very important to talk about collaboration. It is very important to talk about the role of some black traders and chiefs in the slave trade, for instance, or uh, Indian upper castes in, in helping the British Empire in India. Um, but I think that is a slightly different discussion from the bad faith argument that we hear from empire apologists today okay. that, oh, you know, yeah. um, slavery wasn't a white thing because it existed in Africa before, uh, you know, yeah. uh, white people came along or you know it was black people who were selling other black people yes we know that to be true mm -hmm. but it is also true that the rise of the capitalist west and the enormous wealth that the you know the west today has was a very qualitatively different kind of slavery from the slaveries that preceded it it's not that there were yeah, utopian communities uh black slavery, plantation slavery was a particular kind of, and I will say it, a, a holocaust on a, on a huge scale that the world had not seen before. And it is vital that we think about the role uh, of, you know, black people or, or, or uh, you know, Arab traders in it. But I think we should be careful to keep that separate from uh -huh. the, the kind of bad faith argument that you hear, which is, oh, you know, slavery was not a, it was not a Western thing. It was all over the world. That's, that's slightly different. Do you, do you see the distinction? Yeah, no, I just, yeah. I, yeah. I, I the mind. So when I talk to my friends and I say, like, the whole way it's conceived of slavery, and what I said, from, and from how I feel about it, I said, it should be given the same kind of ranking as we do the Reformation or the Enlightenment or the Renaissance. It's transformative. It trans it's a word transformative. Yeah, it's transformative yeah. on such a large yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah. Without the slavery, without slavery, you don't have the money that comes in to yeah. finance all these things, yeah. to finance the Enlightenment, to yeah. finance the Industrial Revolution. So without this, yeah. you, you have the head start yeah. that above all these other countries yeah. that are still trying to play catch up now yeah. because they can't, they can't have that industrialized slave unit, this free workforce. So I said, it's that understand. So it's about how we teach that in school, how we, in education, in places like this, how we, how that narrative is put across to people. Yeah. Because like I said, yeah. we don't, we, we study the Enlightenment, the Reformation, the Renaissance, and rightly so, because they're powerful things. Sure. But also, so is slavery. Sure. And we understand the, the kind of, the, the kind of, the kind of brutalities of it all, but we also, have, we have to understand the social impact. Yeah. How it changed this world. Yeah. And I think that's, like I said, when I try to, like not put a positive spin on it, but try to make you understand it's a wider issue. It's not an issue to, to make you feel guilty, but it's to make you understand how important yeah. it is. So me being here, it's it's important. So I live next to not uh, like not too far from West India Quay. So West yeah. India Quay was built purposely for the safe train, yeah. and it sits in the shadow of Canary Wharf. Yeah. So that's all about finance and power. It's Correct. Built there for for a reason, and I'm trying to say people like so right now people walk in it. It's a party. It's a party place now. But I said, it, this represents empire. This represents, this is a foundation for that. Yeah. So without this, I said, that's how important it is. And, well, most of my mates ignore me. 
Yes, right. <laughs> because nobody wants to make these connections today, right? Because yeah. we, we think of wealth as somehow self-generated. Yeah, it just, yeah, it just yeah, happened. Meritocracy. Exactly. It's the minute at which you realize. And I always tell my students that when you, you know, you got your little Barclays card or whatever, uh, the Barclays brothers back in the day were slave so traders. I didn't. So I didn't know yeah. this. He yeah. so taught me yeah. all about this, about the banks and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, that seemed about me saying so I didn't know it, but yeah, I didn't and. People yeah. don't. People yeah. don't know that. that. Yeah. But, I mean, to go back to where, where this uh, bit of our conversation started, everybody has to think about why we are the way we <laughs> are, or the role that we have played in historical events. I mean, I'm, I'm an Indian upper caste, um, so although I may recognize racial aggression and racial microaggressions when I'm in a white majority environment, I, that very recognition has to remind me that back in India, my communities, my people who are upper caste, are the people with the advantage, and that we enact microaggressions <laughs> on a regular basis to people who are from a, a, a different caste background. So it's never a question of, as you just said rightly, just victims or just perpetrators in, mm -hmm. in some measure we are all all of these things mm -hmm. uh, you know if you're if you're a, a young black man uh, as you as you were pointing out a little while ago about when you were talking about the gym you're also a man and so mm -hmm. you know there's there are certain kind of patriarchal uh, privileges that accrue to you whatever your kind of race position mm -hmm. might be so uh, we're never one thing or the other and I think that that's the necessity of, of complexity that we all have to embrace when people when you're trying to explain to people the man on the street they don't they're not interested in complexity no no so I try not to essentialize yeah so if I'm trying to talk about I, I rarely try to talk about race because it's taboo and people get really uh, emotional. Yes. The first thing they get emotional. So I yes. try to, to, approaching a racial topic. First, I always try to speak about gender because men, women, that's what people see. Yeah. So I try to say to my kind of male friends how to explain how to try to explain how race, what racism to people like. I said, try to think, understand what, what you do as a man. I said, there's a certain sometimes you like look at a woman and you might think you're just looking but your, the, your look is making it feel a certain mm, way. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is how I try to explain the kind of complexities, try to essentialize and like, that's the, that feeling. You don't know what it is. I can't quantify it, but it's there. Yeah. You know you're yeah. doing it. As a man, you know yeah. you're, you're staring and you're, you're objectifying. Yeah. You know you're doing that. But also the, the woman, and it makes the woman feel a certain way. Yeah. I said, race is similar. I said, people do a nod, a stare or, or a shuffle. And to, to an outside person, it might just look at the set, but I know. Yeah. That person knows. Yeah. And it's those kind of things that happen sure. over and over and over again. And in spaces, I don't know, from my experience in the corporate world, it happens loads of times. From jokes about, oh, you, how many kids you got? Why are you asking me? You know you haven't got any kids. Right. Oh, you must have loads of girlfriends. Right. Oh, you're a great dancer, aren't you? You right. must be a great dancer. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. right. Yeah. And I guess, as a woman of colour, it's it's a completely other level, it's not this completely different level to TSO, even though we are positioned and recognised and I recognise myself as black, the way we experience racism is very different, as yes, you said, yes. because of things like gender yeah. and the way I am positioned is in so many of these spaces is so, so disheartening that it's still happening and that it, every day is like a bit of a battle mm -hmm. and 
talking about colonialism and all the histories it's like how can we put across to people in a, in a more useful way about what it's like to be us and how can we make it more easy for people to understand how we need to, our position to be changed and to be not necessarily elevated but it's really difficult to explain but it's, 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 it's like the histories are really important and like it's like I want those histories to be a part of our understanding of race and racism in particular institutions yeah, yeah. but it's like missing from so many of these conversations are women of colour and mm. what that's like mm. and I feel like you've spoken a lot about that and that's been really inspiring and because you can feel really you can feel really alone it's a contradictory position in some ways on the one hand you're constantly doing the labor of explaining yes these things, which I just which, you know, saw yeah, I was literally just, just doing yeah, yeah, and yeah. I couldn't do yeah, it it's, <laughs> yeah. hard. it's hard yeah. also because it's awkward to talk about oneself you know, all the time, it yeah. feels it feels strange. It is not a fun position to occupy, particularly as, as you will know, you get painted very quickly as the angry black woman or the yeah. angry woman of color or the hysterical yeah. woman or whatever whatever that might be. Invite people to think about the ways in which they have experienced aggression or marginalization. Yes. Uh, some of my work, at any rate, involves getting white women to recognize that although they may be at the receiving end of sexism and misogyny, they participate in whiteness and you know that they have to be attuned to the ways in which they can also be part of a structure of advantage. Which feels like it's been a very difficult conversation it is to a, have. Yeah. Almost yeah. hard almost one of the hardest it is I one find. Of the hardest, yeah. It is one of the hardest. I think, I mean, um, Rennie Edo Lodge uses the phrase feminism's race problem and yeah. I think that's a very pithy way of people seeing themselves as either victims or perpetrators. Um, I think there's a tendency if you are um, a woman, and I, I can speak for instance of upper caste women mm. in India, uh, to see yourself purely as a victim. And to not at the same time say, okay, I may be disadvantaged as a woman and I may be facing down patriarchy and misogyny as a woman, but what are the structures in which I am not the victim, but the perpetrator? And I think that that conversation within white feminism has not happened in any depth. No. I mean, white feminism has to turn around and ask itself serious questions about race probably and of course also about sexuality and gender identification mm -hmm. uh, there is a way in which i think straight white you know cis women uh tend not to think about the ways in which they're privileged mm -hmm. uh, and i'm not speaking about all women no, obviously but, but a significant majority don't do what i just said you know black people and people of color have to do which is to think about not just our victimhood but also the other ways in which we have been historical agents mm -hmm. or historically advantaged. That's why I keep stressing everybody has to have this conversation with themselves and their communities. It's not just about identifying bad guys and good guys, as you were saying earlier. So you're working like decolonization and I thought we could always quite interesting to decolonize people's minds. Yeah. I find that difficult. So that's way your background, my parents come from Grenada, mm -hmm. West Indian Island, initially French owned by the British. So my upbringing is very empire-esque. Mm -hmm. My nan is is very British. Mm -hmm. If I go to the West Indies, I have Christmas turkey mm -hmm. in the boiling heat, cups of tea, very, very English, very, very formal. The class system there is very entrenched. So 
for example, the graveyard split into upper, middle and lower. Right. Very, very Victorian right. almost. They drive on the left, all this stuff. But it's trying to, that this mindset that's been created in our heads, and not just of people of colour, but everyone. So yeah. when people are critical of the empire, people see that you're taking something away. Sure. But I'm not, I'm trying to paint the empire as it is. So there is kind of that whole kind of hoo-ha of Winston Churchill. So he is a national hero. He done some good stuff, but also he's a man. He done bad stuff too. Mm -hmm. That doesn't detract from what he does. So one of the things I kind of go back to is, is Kant. I love Kant, but I also Kant was deeply racist. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't detract from his philosophy. Mm -hmm. But it's the man in his totality. Mm -hmm. And if we can, if we can position empire in that way, I think that's better for everyone to understand it in its totality. So the, like the Roman Empire is amazing, but it had lots of slaves. Treat people really badly. So I think what I'm saying to Priya now, and what Priya was just talking about then, is that it works a little bit differently with regards to women and white feminism, as in we we still need to have that decolonisation conversation, but the resistance sometimes that I've found within when I'm having conversations with white women or in, within academia or outside of is that, oh no, I'm, I've been a victim of sexism, so I can't actually understand yeah, that correct. possibly correct. the racism that I'm... Um, but also, the, I think sometimes if you... It's the complicit in. No, but the label. People are so scared of being labelled a racist. So no one wants to be labelled a racist. And that, that fear makes people behave in a certain way. Yeah, and the, I mean, the, the ironic thing is that I found, uh, going back to your earlier question, Chantel, that... The problem is that when you speak about racism, you're charged with being the bad person who's mm. talking about race. So that, in an ironic way, and I keep saying this, that it's somehow worse to speak about racism as a problem than it is to be racist. So in a, in a curious oh, wow. way, yeah, 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 just, yeah. You, you can be racist and get away with it, but you will be pilloried and bad-mouthed mm. if you talk about racism. And that's one of the big costs of talking about racism, is that you have to deal with uh, the charge that you are the person who is being divisive, who's being conflictual, mm. who's not being civil, who's being uncollegial, mm. unfriendly. So I always say it's ironic. You, you can be a racist and it's fine, or you can be blind to your racial privilege and it's fine, but it's the person who talks about these things uh, who ends up being the kind of baddie in the mm. conversation. And that is extremely exhausting mm. to have to constantly not only do the labor of talking about racism, but also then for your pains, uh, be painted as a conflictual or a divisive person. What I always find interesting is it's quite a unique thing. So growing up, I always thought race was an American issue. Yeah. But race obviously is a British issue, but we don't, it's not a British thing. We don't speak about we it. We don't, yeah. It's it's something that British, British, we don't do. Yeah. Even though all the legacies of empire and even up until, like I was, I was saying to Chantal uh, the other day, I said, like, the irony is after studying the far right, I said, Repatriation was a BNP national front thing for years. And then ironically, the government did it. Yeah. <laughs> like 30, 40 years later, the government did what? People said, no, no, that's beyond the pale. They did it. And I said, can you believe that space? I bet Nick Griffin or, or all these people, uh, John Tyndall, they're amazed. All those who are campaigning, we didn't have to do it. The government did it for us. So you're in this space and you're thinking, well, this is like, how do we even get here? Yeah. How did we get to a space where this is actually normal? It's not under the carpet. Yeah. And I just think to myself, like, how, how did we get here? I know you've experienced 
personal racism you've experienced trolling on twitter yeah. you've experienced the daily mail you've experienced hate mail like that's it's absolutely awful and i feel like sometimes what we're seeing now is that it's become normalized yeah and people aren't shocked about it or people don't even realize like i was telling someone outside of academia um in my family about your what, what's been happening to you they were like, oh wow, that I can't believe that. What right. what nowadays? Right, I'm like, right, right. Yes, yes that's that's yes. happening. Yep. Like yep. what that's been like. Um it's the, the the name calling and the using of the you know the n-word and and so on on twitter or in um or in letters handwritten letters um that's ugly but in a way i can cope with that better than the racism that doesn't speak its name mm -hmm. there's a curious way in which somebody who will call you the n-word right is basically saying hey i'm a racist and i just called you a racist yes. term um and i'm also like you i'm also i also raise my eyebrow when people say really somebody sent you that letter and i actually had to post that letter on twitter for people yeah. to believe that it had come and then you think well why do people assume that we live in a world where it's very strange that somebody would use the n-word because we know mm. that there's a lot of everyday racism we know there's a lot of uh hatred sloshing around um in fact the strange thing is what is why wouldn't people be using the, the n-word or, or you know as happened in america roseanne barr referring to a black woman as a, as a monkey because we live in times when this is perfectly normalized um and so i find the shock and horror a little bit disingenuous but i think that in from a personal point of view i don't find the outright trolling and nastiness a problem for me i think it's a much deeper problem that we don't talk about structural racism we don't talk about microaggressions in uh in everyday life in a in a supposedly progressive and emancipated university community um and that to talk about those things uh inevitably brings i have to say this a degree of institutional punishment and institutional opprobrium right that you you get cast as the difficult one uh you get cast as you know somebody said uh not long ago oh you know we have to walk on eggshells around you and i said you know that's a little bit problematic yeah uh, that i would be cast as the person around whom everybody has to be careful because i've said look this won't do but this is this is what i find disingenuous and like i said i don't really care about outright racism mm. it's, it's mm. boring to me it's, it's it is boring, boring. at it's some boring level it is boring but what's what's disingenuous is this argument that because i've raised the point that they they have the right position at the moment that their freedom of speech is somehow being eroded yeah. and so it comes to they've twisted the argument now saying it's the freedom of speech yeah. argument right so this person's preventing me your political correctness is preventing me yeah from saying what i want yeah, to say yeah, yeah. so you're damaging one yeah. of the fundamental rights of western civilization right. freedom of speech and this is a consistent theme now on the right so from someone as mainstream as katie hopkins to someone as far right as uh, david duke and ku klux klan we can't we feel as people or white people and our whiteness we can't be white yeah, yeah. because we're kind of treading right. and I, I said anecdotal i said on even the most superficial level and like i've got friends that agree with this but i said on the most superficial level i said look around you look around your reality so who do you see mm. who runs all the mm. companies mm. who who's in power mm. 
by conceding my points, you're not. It's not changing anything. Yeah. It's just acknowledging how the world is. Yeah. And yeah. what we can do to change yeah. it. You know, there's a there's a the very recent controversy at Stanford University when uh, historian Neil Ferguson was caught out getting some of his students to spy uh, on a on yeah. a, a lefty student, um, and there was there was a little bit of a controversy around this. And part of and of course the immediate charges were about free speech being shut down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing with uh, when and then Neil Ferguson wrote a piece in the Times last week saying, you know, basically that he was. Um, uh, in a sense, a victim of this kind of repressive left-wing campus mm -hmm. atmosphere. What had he done? He had brought Charles Murray, a discredited... Uh, oh, God. Yes, exactly. That guy's still around. Yeah, he's, oh. very much he's very much so this around. Is just, to, just for the purpose of the podcast, Charles yeah. Murray describes the underclass as the rabble that reproduce lots of children and they're a drain on the state. Yes, and he also believes in the, that there are different racial intelligence yes. levels. Yes, eugenics, yeah. Uh, and and Ferguson and company were arguing that uh, it was a violation, and some students obviously protested. And this and their argument is that this is a, a violation of uh, academic freedom and free speech. And I think it's very important in these contexts to say there's a difference between free speech and discredited uh, speech, which is and hate speech. Is there a virtue to bringing people onto campus uh, who are saying that, you know, uh, black people aren't as intelligent uh, as white people? Is this contributing anything to knowledge? Uh, is this something that an academic community should take seriously? I think there's a, there's a, there's a real um, confusion about uh, what free speech is on the one hand and what academically creditable you know, sustainable discourses in, in, in universities are. Um, but you're quite right that now the right uh, and the white supremacist right in particular has taken on the mantle of victim for itself. <laughs> so that to even charge anybody uh, with saying something problematic or, you know, or say that there's a kind of racial issue is to be supposedly violating their free speech. And this is very deliberate, the embracing of the position of the victim. Of victim. And, and this is what I find interesting. So they use a the language of multiculturalism to defend mm. their position. Mm. And it, it almost seems, it seems counterintuitive, but this has been a well thought out and well planned use yes. of this. So when I looked at the evolution of the far, of, of the alt-right, sorry, and not the kind of, the kind of homogenous group that we think of, but more like the white supremacist part of it, they have known this and understand that the way to win culture is through your words and to kind of distort culture at that level. So appropriate things like multicultural when needed to to use as a tool to get your point. Across. Absolutely. They, I mean, there's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that they, they claim to be against so-called postmodern relativism. <laughs> but when it comes to them, they want relativism, right? <clears throat> so if, if you make a claim for a cultural practice or a different point of view because you're not, you're not a white and Christian, then you're really problematic because you're being multicultural and relativist. But when they want to say things about, uh, you know, some cultures being worse than others <clears throat> or uh, some race as being smarter than others, then they have the right to say these things because that's their culture, <laughs> right? And so it's funny, their relativism is something they use uh, against other people but claim as their own privilege. Sometimes like, what I find from universities, some universities side of the internet kind of unfortunately has created a kind of epistemological problem in that knowledge is under threat. So they see, they always seem there's a, an alternative narrative. So yeah. the mainstream narrative is not true. 
Yeah. So what they teach you in universities is not true. Yeah. This is the truth yeah. on the internet. Yeah. This is just, so on the most kind of uh, I suppose high profile things when they flag up the word like fake news. The idea of this kind of this narrative that's moving through it doesn't just apply to what Trump's saying. This is a narrative aimed at the whole kind of edifice of the West. So they're kind of doubting things like. The, for example, the Holocaust, revision of empire, yeah. all these things, this narrative that they're trying to tell you is not true. This is the true narrative. But this creates a problem of what is knowledge now? But this is what, what, what I find difficult with this stuff is that I can see it seeping into outside of the far right yeah. and into the everyday. Absolutely. And that's what I'm finding a lot dangerous. I mean, Tiso's research, as you've heard on previous podcasts and this one, is about the far right and how they understand society now and how they're recruiting basically but what i'm concerned about is these ideas how i'm starting to see them more in public life i mean they've always been there subliminally but yeah. people are being more vocal hang on what about me yeah the white guy what about us yeah gammon's racist yeah. Yeah. all yeah. these things yeah. and it's like that's what that's what i'm finding yeah. worrying yeah. and I, I i feel unsafe yeah as absolutely. well because of it absolutely. so yeah we can see what's happening on the internet we can see what's happening in the far right it's it's awful it's shocking but i'm seeing this appear in the everyday yes and it, and it has more consequences yes uh in in the everyday there are two things out there that are missing from this wider conversation uh about these things one there is no recognition of how power works right mm -hmm. so it's not the same thing uh to say uh you know uh white men have a culture which must be respected uh it's not it, it there is no parity between being uh, a, a queer black woman and being a straight white man uh, yeah. they're, they're not equal and opposite identities no. one one is the norm and the other is very much not the norm yeah. um, and so you know uh, we have to bring power back into the discussion this is the big refusal the refusal yes. to talk about power, power and yes. how you know, and I actually said recently in in a context uh, I can't remember where, but that we should stop talking about identity and identity politics and talk about subject politics because the issue is not whether you identify as white and Christian or you know black and Muslim. The issue is who is subject and in what ways to the operations of power, mm -hmm. and what matters is not you know what the identities people claim for themselves, but the subject subject position that they yeah. occupy and the, and the ways in which they're subject to the operations of power because then the discussion shifts because it can't just be about saying well i'm a white man and you must respect my culture the point is are you subject to the operations of a racialized patriarchy or and the, not and this is like it's a little bit like bringing it back to the higher education context yeah this is what i feel like is missing it's not a level playing field no it's not correct and there is this for some reason, like so many intelligent people that work in these institutions that I would position as rational, whatever that means, and they still can't realise that actually we don't start at the same level, right. which means there is less likely to be right. people that will come here. Right. Like, and it's that lack of acknowledgement for uh, the subject. Well, because it doesn't pay to recognise power if power is working in your favour. This is the thing. So if it's the default setting for you, why would you even care? Yeah. Why would you yeah. even care? And I understand that now. So in my journey through my life, I've met people and they have power. I understand that. But I, know, I understand the nature of things. But also, if I understand, he understands. Yeah. So and we play that game. Or can understand. Yeah, he can understand. Yeah. And so yeah. We play that game. We play that dance. Right. And we, we both know what's going on here. And we accept that. And, and I guess that's the status quo, isn't it? That, but when you start talking about the status quo, 
people get upset because no one has to talk about privilege. Yeah. Because privilege makes you feel a bit embarrassed. Yeah. If I've got more money than you, I don't really want to talk about it because it makes me makes me yeah. feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Rather than you. That yeah. It's how I feel about it. And I think that's when you talk about power. People in power don't want to talk about power because it makes them feel yeah. uncomfortable. I could be abusing my power. Yeah. Sometimes I might be. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable. And you probably are yeah, probably because that's are. how power yeah. works. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, discomfort is something that we need to bring back mm -hmm. into the conversation that all of us, mm -hmm. but particularly, you know, the more, uh, the higher up you are in the advantage and power hierarchy, mm -hmm. the more you need to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I think we need to have uncomfortable uh, conversations. Unfortunately, today that that claim is being made by uh, you know people who are already in power. They, you know their their point is that we are the ones uh, that is the people. You know if you're female or queer or black, uh, you need to be made uncomfortable by power. Mm -hmm. And the point is no, we need to be made uncomfortable about power mm -hmm. and, and our relationship to power, mm -hmm. not by power. And I think there's there's a kind of uh, uh, a misunderstanding around you know what what discomfort can and should do this is a, a book uh, Jamaica Kincaid's a small place as you can see it's a very slim little volume takes about an hour to read at most it's a it's a text I do with my students every year and it's basically a little a sort of a memoir slash polemic about tourism in Antigua uh, about uh, about white tourists coming to Antigua and, and it, it, it provides the starting point for a kind of um, a, a lament and a, and a kind of rant about colonialism, slavery and so on. Um, but what I find very useful about this book is that, is that on, it, it appears to begin by talking about white people and, uh, and white supremacy and white advantage. But towards the end of the book, she addresses her fellow Antiguans um, and she uh, puts certain questions out, difficult, uncomfortable questions for them to address as well. Uh, and she makes a very interesting connection between the history of slavery and the ways in which certain uh, elites in uh, Antigua today are able to get away with exploiting their own people. Um, and I'm going to read a passage which for me uh, is the heart of questions of diversity and decolonization because I think the way she puts it, although at, at that point in the text she's addressing uh, fellow Antiguans, I think this is the question that everybody can take away uh, in, in these conversations. Um, so she's talking about um, Antigua as a small place um, and how uh, things happen there and she says, and might not knowing why they are the way they are, why they do the things they do, why they live the way they live and in the place they live, why the things that happened to them happened, lead these people to a different relationship with the world, a more demanding relationship, a relationship in which they're not victims all the time of every bad idea that flits across the mind of the world. I'd say that this is something that, that the today's white male upper-class victim can ask himself as well. Why am I the way I am? Why am I here? How did I come to be in the position that I occupy? And how do I stop seeing myself simply as a victim? Uh, so although, you know, as I said, this is these are questions we all have to ask ourselves. I think it's a, it's a generally good uh, set of questions for decolonizing and changing uh, racialized power relations. If we all sort of say, what are the histories that brought us to where we are 
and what are the questions we must ask of others and of ourselves. That's powerful, really powerful, yeah. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantelle, Tiso and Priya. Um, we'll be back every few weeks, so don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thank you. Thank you.